In the name of the triune Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and Mother of us all. Amen. The church has called him Simeon the God Receiver and has embroidered the Gospel of Luke's brief depiction of him. He was a translator, says one tradition. He had been translating the book of Isaiah into Greek when an angel came to him and said, you will see these words fulfilled. You will not die until you behold Christ the Lord born of a virgin. And indeed, the hands that once held papyrus came instead to cradle the infant Jesus and the eyes that had strained themselves over text beheld the Christ child whom Simeon named glory and light. What do we do once we have seen the Lord. Simeon prays. Once we've seen the Lord, we commune with the Lord with words. And indeed, the church has taken up Simeon's phosphorescent prayer into our own prayer. We call Simeon's poem, after the Latin translation, the Nunc Dimittis, the now dismiss. And we often pray the Nunc Dimittis in nighttime prayer services, imploring the Lord to dismiss us into a night of safe sleep. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For these eyes of mine have seen thy salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to enlighten the nations and the glory of thy people, Israel. Over the centuries, faithful Christians have turned to Simeon's words, not just repeating them in our services of corporate prayer and setting them to music by William Byrd and Gustav Holst and many others, but also lifting Simeon's words out of scripture, out of liturgy, and pronouncing them when we see something that we think smacks of salvation. Here's one very public example. The Republican Convention, Chicago, 1860. During the tense third ballot, Ohio switched four votes from Salmon P. Chase to Abraham Lincoln, thereby giving the lawyer from Illinois the Republican nomination. At Ohio's announcement, one man started crying and another old man started quoting scripture at the top of his lungs. Now, Lord, lettest thou thy servant depart in peace for these eyes of mine, etc. To be sure, we ought to pause whenever we hear American history being cast in these redemptive terms. 
And yet, how very striking that at this climactic moment, this political moment that set the nation on the course to liberate four million slaves, our old Republican man reached for the words of another old man, as though the convention attender in Chicago had a premonition of the redemption that Lincoln's election would help bring about. What do you do after you have seen the Lord? Simeon prayed, and then Simeon died. This is another one of those embroideries the church stitched from Luke's implications, that just shortly after cradling the Christ child, the angel's promise to him now fulfilled, Simeon did in fact actually die. So that's another thing we might do after seeing the Lord. <laughs> I don't mean that glibly. For Christians, death is always the surest sign that things here and now are not yet as God wants them to be. And yet, because God takes everything, even death, into God's practices of redemption, death is also the means by which we are drawn finally near to the Lord. After seeing the Lord, Simeon died. I say that neither glibly nor, nor with aim to alarm. I know that you too have seen Jesus, though in a way sort of different from Simeon. I know you've seen him in the Eucharist, and I know when you see someone suffering, you see in that suffering the sufferings of Jesus. I know you've seen Jesus in the refugee and the incarcerated, and I know that very occasionally on those few mornings when you graciously know that you really are made in the image and likeness of God, you glimpse him in your own self. So I know you have seen the Lord, and I'm not suggesting that having done so, you now need to hasten your death. But I do think this morning's story from Luke unavoidably gives us this possible trajectory, this possible shape of a life. What do you do after you have seen the Lord you prepare to die. Or to put that less drastically, after seeing the Lord, you return to the Lord. And everything in between the seeing and the return is but waiting for the return. I'm not sure that I believe that. But I wonder what my life would look like if I did. Last week, I found myself having two conversations with two couples, friends of mine, both in their mid-50s, both quite successful in meaningful lines of work. Two of the four are successful musicians, and two are accomplished scientists. And both conversations turned to the shape of their lives, to how they were going to shape the next decade. And I was struck by all the anxiety we seemed to feel. 
or at least I felt it, to keep making the right decisions, the decisions that would allow us to contribute, and the decisions that would finally make good on all the promise we believe we still carry around here at midlife. And above all, the decisions that would make our lives meaningful, that would wrest as much meaning as possible from the stuff of our lives. Of course, in one way, it's right and proper for five people into whom the world has poured terrific education and terrific opportunity to want to make something of those things. But there was also a way in which these conversations seemed neurotic and insane. In them, I felt that I was somehow failing to take hold of the main thing. So when I say that Simeon answers the question, what do you do after seeing the Lord by dying? I think I mean to see Simeon's life shape as a counterpoint to my own. And I mean to drain away some of my fretful self-importance and to relieve the angst of my friend's midlife anxieties, which are not after all, so different from the anxiety of college students trying to find their path, or even the anxiety I sometimes hear from my own father, who now in his late 70s tells me he wonders what he is meant to be doing now, now that the years of public service and work are behind him. Maybe what we do after seeing the Lord is simply fill up the time as best we can, offering healing where we can, and extending the ravages of sin as little as we can, and enjoying God's good creation as we can. Maybe we simply fill the time as best we can until we return to the Lord we have seen. There is so much going on in this morning's story from Luke. The story takes place 40 days after the birth of Jesus and the Holy Family goes to the temple to perform two rituals, the mother's postpartum sacrifice and the redemption of the son. In our Bibles, the story is often titled the presentation of Jesus. And in one way, Jesus is the obvious center of the story. But in fact, the story is bursting with other people. And when I read this passage from Luke, my attention rarely lingers on Jesus per se. I'm always drawn to one of the other characters, to Simeon, the God receiver, or to Mary, who stands there in the temple while this oracular old man takes her child in his arms and tells Mary that the child will be a sign that is spoken against, and that a sword will pierce your own soul too. That is the word Mary receives when she's 40 days a mother. And then third, there is Anna, the second of the story's elderly seers, elderly visionaries. There was a prophet, Anna, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, and for all the decades of her widowhood, she had lived in the temple praying and fasting. 
As Simeon is addressing the Holy Family, Anna comes up to them. And Luke tells us that she gave thanks to God and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to redemption. The specific words Anna spoke were not recorded, so the church has not taken up her proclamation as we have Simeon's into our centuries of prayer. But perhaps that means that Simeon spoke in this one quotable poetic burst. And maybe Anna, maybe Anna just talked a lot not only on that morning when she first saw Jesus, but maybe Anna lived on in the temple for another 10 or 20 years, and maybe every day she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to redemption. Maybe Anna was the first evangelist. This, Luke seems to be saying, is another way to respond to seeing the Lord. After you see him, devote yourself to talking about him. What if we spoke about the child to everyone who was looking forward to redemption? Which is to say, what if we spoke about the child to everyone? Just about everyone is looking forward to redemption. Just about everyone knows the sufferings of the world, the failures of love and politics. Just about everyone knows the cosmos needs more healing. What if we spoke about the child to everyone looking forward to redemption? There is this rather long poem by W.H. Auden. It is called For the Time Being, and I read a portion of it every year after Christmas. The portion I read is sort of about coming back down to earth after the holidays. Everything looks shrunken after the holiday, says the poem. During the holiday, we'd managed to forget that the office is so depressing. And we'd managed to forget that we are sort of depressing and limited. We'd been swept up into the holiday thing, into the transfiguration of the holiday. And then after the holiday ends, the city seems to have shrunk and we remember the mundanity of it all. The line in the poem that really slays me is this. Once again, as in previous years, we have seen the actual vision and failed to do more than entertain it as an agreeable possibility. How unlike Anna we are. Once again, as in previous years, we have seen the actual vision and failed to do more than entertain it as an agreeable possibility, whereas Anna sees the actual vision and talks about it to anyone who will listen. The church has traditionally called this day, February 2nd, the holiday of Candlemas a name that focuses our attention on Simeon's luminous language. Simeon says that Jesus is a light that will give light to all the nations. He is a light to enlighten the Gentiles. 
Mary and Joseph would have heard in Simeon's elusive phrasing an echo of the prophet Isaiah, who had centuries before said that Israel was a light to the nations, and now Jesus is that light. Jesus concentrates that light somehow, all of Israel's light compressed into him. The church has pulled Simeon's words into our prayers and music, and over time, the church also developed a way of making Simeon's words material. Each year on the day when the church read Simeon's Ode on this festival of Candlemas, the church also turned its attention to the practicalities of light. For many centuries, it was the Candlemas custom that everyone in the parish would gather before the worship service started, and they would all have an armful of candles, and the priest would bless the candles, and then all the people would make a bright and festive procession into church. And after the morning worship was over, some of the candles were stacked in the sacristy. They'd be the candles used in worship all year. So that on an ordinary Sunday in April or September, you might look up in the middle of the Lord's Prayer or in the middle of the scripture readings and wonder if the candle burning near the pulpit was the one you had carried in that Candlemas procession. But not all the candles were stored away for springtime church use. Some of the candles were straight away ringed around a statue of the Virgin Mary, devotional light to keep her company after all the people had gone home. And indeed, the people were encouraged to take some of the candles from the procession home with them. Unsurprisingly, those candles, the candles that had processed into the church and that had been blessed by the priest, they were understood as having a bit of extra magic. So sometimes the Candlemas tapers got burned for ordinary light to illumine an ordinary dinner table or give light to work by in early morning. But often, these specially blessed candles were saved and were brought out when magic was needed, during a thunderstorm, or when someone was ill, or lit and placed in the hands of the dying, my hands cupping around your hands as you die, the candle lit. Lord, let us now thy servant depart in peace. Listen for light language next week in church. Next week, we will be back to the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus will be grown, he will be teaching, and he will tell us that we are the light of the world. It is long before his death that he tells us this, and it is before he comes to us in the Eucharist, but already he is giving himself away to us, telling us to be what he is, or telling us at least to participate in what he is, the light of the world. That is another response to seeing the child, to seeing the Lord 
after you have seen the child become light in the name of the triune Lord. Amen.